God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we live in a place and we don't take granted that, for granted that we live in a place where we can freely gather and worship you underneath the banner of Jesus Christ publicly. And God, we, we pray for our brothers and our sisters around the world right now who have to do this in secret. Uh, that God, you would strengthen them, you'd encourage them, you would empower them as they are changing their world. Uh, but God, we would use these freedoms, that we would leverage these freedoms of, of, of religious expression to broadcast your message of hope to this city. That God, we would have a just like Nehemiah did at the very beginning of this, this story, that, that we would, our heart would be broken at times for the brokenness in this city and that we would say we can't allow it to be like this anymore and we have to be the people that raise up and rise up and, and, and say we will not stand for this anymore and we will bring hope and dignity back to this city. So God, we, we pray that you'd show us today as we look at the next kind of season or part of the story that, that you would speak to us about opposition. You'd speak to us about persecution, that you would strengthen us during this time. We thank you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you are just joining us, um, let me catch you up to speed. We're in a series uh, looking at and looking through the entire book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah seems like kind of a basic structural engineering story on the surface. But whenever you start to dig a little bit deeper, just like with most stories in, in Scripture, you start to see there's a depth and a richness to it that it still applies to your life. It still applies to, to really, almost. There, I, I, I would go so far as to say there's almost no situation in life that you go through where you cannot find somebody, some story, something in scripture that somebody can relate to you with. I was just having, I was having lunch this week with, with, a man, with a guy, a friend of mine who was been in ministry and then just through a bunch of different circumstances had to step out of ministry for a while and it has just gone through a season of, of hurt and healing and restoring and, and, and I talked to him about what's God, I asked him the question, what's God saying to you right now? What's God talking to you about lately? And he said, God's talking to me about dreams about how um, I may have these dreams for me, but, but oftentimes because I feel like of what, what has happened to me because of my choices, because of circumstances, I don't have the space to dream anymore. And so I got to have this moment where I got to tell this guy that, I, that God has used in tremendous, tremendous ways. To, I just said to him, look, there's no situation in your life that is out of bounds of grace. And what I mean by that is there's no decision you've made there's no relationship that is broken there's no consequence that that God cannot use to redeem it may have not been God's will for this to happen to you but it is also within God's reach of restoring and transforming and so I started to talk to him about God wanting to forgive you and restore you and redeem you. And I was like, let me ask you a question. I said, what, what are you reading in, in the Bible right now? If God's speaking to you about dreams, what's the first kind of Bible reference that you can think of when you hear the word dreams? And this guy knows the scripture just as well as you do, so I'll answer for you because I know you want to answer that question. And it's the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? for those of you who are Broadway fans. But the fact is, God spoke to Joseph through these dreams. 
And I said, what if God's calling you to, to really dig into these dreams for your life by studying the story of this man that God used in his dreams? So what I'm saying is there is not a situation in your life I go so far to say that that somebody in Scripture didn't experience something similar to you, and you can't glean wisdom, direction, discernment, encouragement, inspiration from. And so when we look at Nehemiah, even though on the surface it just seems to be the story of a guy who saw a broken wall and stacked some rocks on top of it, and then that was it, there's so much more to it. What we've seen, how we're looking at, maybe the angle we're approaching Nehemiah with, as a church, is the story of vision, is the angle of vision. Because if you know anything about Nehemiah, and I hope you've seen it through this, if not, if you're joining us just for the first time today, go back, listen to our podcast, start to study this on your own. Nehemiah is a man full of vision. He's full of vision. He's a man who saw what things were like and knew that things had to be better and could be better than they were if this occurred. And in the context of this story, it was about building a wall. But we've talked about how building a wall was never just the vision of Nehemiah. You see, let me catch you up to speed, okay? The very beginning of Nehemiah, of, of Nehemiah talks about how the, the nation of Israel has sinned. They've turned their back on God. God has had to punish them and literally exile them from the, ha- the land that he gave them and their ancestors. And so global empires, world empires had taken over, run the land. And so we pick up historically in the timeline of history during the Persian Empire. Okay, if any of you study history, you'll know about the Persian Empire. Well, Nehemiah was a, a man that found favor in the eyes of the government. We're having some some we're having some two-year-old issues right now. It's it's severe, but stick with me, okay? But um, Nehemiah was a very righteous, faith-filled man who was a Jew, and he, he, he found favor in the, in the eyes of this occupying force and was serving as the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And he was living in the capital of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire at the time, one of the dominant world empires at the time. And, and word gets back to him one day that the, the city of Jerusalem the city of his forefathers, the city of his ancestors, the city of his spiritual covenant community was in complete anarchy, was in complete ruins. There was no wall, there was no gates, which meant there was no safety, there was no security, there was no honor, there was no dignity in this city. A city based its identity off of its ability to be secure and provide safety to people. And so when he hears about that, he just breaks down and he weeps for days. And in our first week of this series, we talked about how vision for the future always comes from a season of prayer. Vision always comes when you are in a posture of prayer, of interceding for someone, of weeping over the current condition of your home, of of just being broken over the condition of people that you love and identify with. And so in that season of mourning, God starts to give him a vision. 
It was a vision of here's what you can do. Here's a tangible way that you can bless and serve the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and provide them and bring them to a point where they can have hope and dignity again. It's never about a wall, folks. It's never about just a wall. But it's what that wall could provide. So he's given this vision. So here's a quick recap of what, what kind of Nehemiah looks like, the, the, the book of Nehemiah. Number one, chapter one, we see that, that the vision for this project is given to Nehemiah from God. That's what we see in chapter one. And then uh, number two is, chapter two is what we call the risk is taken. You see, what happens is Nehemiah is just completely overwhelmed and broken for the state of his of, of, of the city of his spiritual covenant community. And it affects him, and it even affects his work to the point where one day the king that he's serving this wine to says, Nehemiah, what's wrong? You don't look sick, you just look overwhelmed and troubled. And the scripture, the text goes on to say how in that moment, Nehemiah said, you know what, I, I, I quickly said a prayer and said, God, this is the moment you've been giving me. I'm going to take a risk and put myself out there and say, here's what's going to happen, King. My, 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 the walls of my ancestral home are broken and torn to shreds, and I, I, I want to go back and fix it. And the story goes on to say that the king and his queen start to say, well, how long are you going to be gone? So he lays out a timeline for them, and then he begins to lay out his plan. So then we start to see last week where the work begins. So that leads us up to today. We're in chapter 4 today. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, we're going to be starting in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to track through a few chapters today. So if you, the, the benefit of having actual text is that you never have to keep scrolling. Everything's on two pages for me, okay? I'm ahead of you. I'm wasting less energy, all right? Your thumbs are going to be more tired than mine at the end of church because you're going to be scrolling through text. But we're in Nehemiah chapter 4 verses, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to pick this up as the work is beginning to happen, as Nehemiah has recruited a team of people and said, you know what, you and your family, you work on this section. You and your family, you work on this gate. You're a metalsmith, you're a goldsmith, that means you work great with, with, with metallurgy. You guys start building and shaping this iron to be able to strengthen and secure this part of the wall. You and your family, you got a big family, so I'm I'm going to give you a big section, all right? You, you're kind of weak, so I'm going to give you this little, this little part of the wall. He divided up the entire circumference of the city of Jerusalem based on his examinations of the wall, and the work begins. And it even describes in chapter 3 how it was an enthusiastic work. The people were excited because they caught the vision of restoring hope and dignity to their city. And so here's where we pick up in chapter 4. And oftentimes we could stop, a lot of times maybe it would be great if we could just stop right there, right? That's a great story. That'd make for a great, like, sitcom. Wouldn't it be even a nice little movie if you just ended it in chapter 3? But real life, oftentimes, brings us chapter 4 and 5, as you'll see, right? Sometimes real life brings a little bit of conflict and a little bit of persecution and a little bit of, of um, hard times. But what you'll see is that this is going to produce something good. But let's see what happens here in, in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
says this. Sanibal, that was a, a kind of a leader in the community, said, was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. How angry was he? Well, he flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officials, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Verse 3. And this is his friend Tobiah. Kind of adds on. He piles on. How many of you have ever been like that? You, somebody starts to, you know, you're in a circle of friends and one person makes fun of you and all of a sudden like everybody else just starts to pile on because they realize the door's open. All right? That's what happens here. Tobiah starts to pile on. He says, Tobiah the, the Ammonite who was standing beside him remarked, that stone wall could collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. That's a pretty good burn, you have to admit. Right? That's a pretty good burn. All right, good job, Tobiah. That was creative. All right. Verse 4. So they say all these things to, to Nehemiah. And then look what happens. Nehemiah immediately starts to crack back at him and immediately starts to roll up on him, kind of hunch up his sleeves and say, let's go. No, here's what happened. He says, then, this is Nehemiah's first hand account, right? He says, then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. So basically what happens in that is that Nehemiah starts to say, you know what, God, they're coming at me now. We're doing this good work. We're, we're stepping out in faith. We took the risk. We've made the plan, and we've, we've planned the work, and now we're working the plan, and now we're approaching and being opposed for this good work by our enemies. And his first natural reaction, I think this is something I want you to capture today, because we all in this life face Sanibal and Tobias, right? There's people in your life that as you step out in faith, as you do something extraordinary, as you do something that's countercultural to the status quo, as you step out from the crowd to where God's called you to be, there are, of course, naturally going to be people who are going to try to get you to, back, to come back and comply with what is normal. But I think if you see anything through Scripture, it's that God doesn't just do the normal. God does the extraordinary. God is able to do the extraordinary. Look at your neighbor and say, He is able. All right? He is able to do the extraordinary. And when you try to step out and walk into that vision... There will be, I can all but guarantee you, based on experience and scripture and my just experience again, that there will be people who are going to try to bully you, to confront you, to persecute you, whatever it is you want to call it, to bring you back into to what is quote-unquote normal, what is they consider safe. And you know why they're doing that? Because number one, they see you as a threat. Because if you're changing, that means they're going to have to change. It's like that old saying that I invent. No, I'm kidding. It's like that old saying 
that goes, when you change things, things change. That's a simple little truth, right? When you change things, things change in your life. And people don't like change as much as we like to think we like change, as much as we like a new iPhone, as much as we want to have a brand new Tesla. After we have that Tesla, if you have that problem, please come talk to me. I can resolve that for you, okay? I know some donations you can give, one family in particular, okay? Um, but we, we say we like change, but when we actually have to change, it causes a bunch of anxiety in us. And there's going to be people in your life that are going to give you opposition. I have to believe, and I know that just through talking with a lot of you this week, as you have stepped out into the vision that this church is walking into, just this week, I've heard story after story after story of people who you have faced opposition, you have faced persecution, you have faced people calling you out. It may not be directly related to this church, but because you are connected to this church, I believe it's because you are a threat to the enemy. Now, who is the enemy? The enemy is not that bored. Okay, the enemy is not that cousin that's spreading rumors about you. Right? The enemy is not your boss. The enemy is not your boss's wife. Right? The enemy is not that co-worker that just doesn't get it. Who is your enemy in life? Who is your enemy? If you are in Christ, your enemy is not the person in front of you. Right? Scripture says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So I think for a lot of you, as you've faced opposition this week, as you've faced persecution this week, as you've faced just conflict this week, Know that the person that you are having conflict with is not the enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy, okay? My best friend is not my enemy. The enemy that we face, that you face, that all believers face, is a defeated enemy. He's an enemy that Jesus has stomped on his head. See, we don't have to fight for victory if we're in Christ. You don't have to fight for victory from this opposition. You fight from victory if you're in Christ. But we see that Nehemiah starts to receive opposition from outside of his spiritual community, doesn't he? But that's not where it ends either things start to unravel even a little bit more as you look at, at chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. So we see that, that Nehemiah and his crew of people who are in this project of restoring hope and dignity to a city through this project are receiving um, opposition, are receiving persecution, are just being made fun of and mocked from outsiders. But then all of a sudden there, there comes conflict and opposition from within his community as well. Look at what happens in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And he says, about this time, so as these people are mocking him, around the same time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. 
Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And verse 4, others said, we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Doesn't that sound like Hong Kong, doesn't it? Just a spirit of comparison, right? Well, you, you, you know, we're kind of about the same, but you have more than me. But anyways, continuing on. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery, I hope that's not like Hong Kong, just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. Verse 8, at the meeting, I told them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives. You notice again, he doesn't say, we are doing all we can to distract us from the bad things in front of us by building a wall. There was a purpose behind the vision. He says, we're doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Verse 9, then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. You should not walk in the fear of our God. Should, should you not, there we go. You, should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We're almost there. Verse 12. They replied, We will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and said, If you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assembly responded, Amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did just as they had promised. So, what you see is that opposition is coming from almost all angles now, right? Opposition is coming from people who don't want this wall to be built and hope and dignity and safety and security restored to these people because they like being able to benefit from the anarchy going on inside the city. And then, as they're in the middle of this project... People within them, their, their co-workers, their co-laborers, people in their entire community, their same community are saying, look, something else is happening. So can you put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes in that moment? Can you see it almost just on like a, thre- a thread's edge of falling, this whole thing falling apart? Can you imagine what this story would be like 
if Nehemiah said, so because I was getting it from the outside, and because I was getting it from the inside, I just threw my hands up in the air and said, God, this is crazy. These people are nuts. Nobody's listening to me. I'm out of here. Let me go find another city to build up. This whole thing would have taken a left turn really quickly, wouldn't it? But he stuck with it. And he stuck with it because Nehemiah understood something. Even though he was in the middle of a hard, hard, hard season, in the middle of a hard thing, he understood that hard things make you stronger. He understood that muscles only grow through resistance. We have little sayings in my family. I make my kids repeat them to the point where they just get annoyed most of the time. Like, Some of them are like, um, I'm a part of this family. I'm not a cent- the center of this family. Um, it is not fun to cause people problems. Um, I will not hit my brother. You know, no touching above the shoulders because the neck seems to be a, a relevant aim when wrestling with my kids it seems like but one of the things that that I make my kids say and hoping that this barrage of little sayings eventually through years and years and years and years and years and years of repetition will start to sink in is that the hard things are the best things look at your neighbor say the hard things are the best things hard things are the best things And what I mean by that is oftentimes the things in life that are the absolute hardest to do, the situations that are the hardest, the confrontations that you know are going to be so hard and stressful and anxiety-causing are oftentimes the things that are the most important, the things that that are going to be the best things. Nehemiah understood that just because there's conflict, just because there's resistance, just because something doesn't come easy doesn't mean that it's wrong. Oftentimes, if everything's going right, if, if everything's going smoothly, then I would, I'm kind of starting to wonder if maybe your vision was too small. Like if, the vision, if the vision for this church, if the vision for your life doesn't scare you a little bit, then I don't know if it's from God. Because that means the only way that the vision you have received for your life will occur is only if God intervenes. If the vision of this church to be a multiplying sender of people who go out throughout all of the world and throughout all of this city and restore hope and dignity to people is ever to be accomplished, it's because God intervened. Not because I came up with some master strategy. Lord knows if that's the case, I would have given up a long time ago. But you see, Nehemiah understood that hard things make you stronger. Studies have shown, and and there is actually now systems in place where um, if an astronaut spends any significant amount of time outside of the atmosphere of Earth, 
He has to go through a very specific rehabilitation program upon re-entry because the time that he has spent in space at the International Space Station or doing whatever it is astronauts do these days, um, that the, the, even while they're in outer space and the reduced amount of gravity, their body, because of that reduced amount of gravity, actually starts to lose muscle mass, starts to lose bone mass because there is not as much resistance as there is walking around normally. So actually, studies have shown, and people will notice that upon re-entry to Earth, after they've spent any significant portion of time outside of Earth's atmosphere, astronauts are in a state of atrophy. And atrophy literally means the shrinking of your muscles. Because they faced no resistance outside of the, the normal level of gravity that the Earth provides, their body literally began to shrink. Shrink, shrink. Right? I need real life grammarly sometimes, right? Like, I just need a little blue light to pop up and say, nope, that's not the right tense. But, um, but you see, your life is in the perfect shape for the amount of effort you are putting into it right now. And if you want to be stronger, if you want to be more faith-filled, if you want to be more generous, if you want to be a greater worshiper, if you want to have a greater influence, if you want to be more righteous, you're going to have to train your body and train your spirit through resistance, through opposition, through hard things to make it stronger. Your body is in the perfect shape for the life that you put it through on a day-by-day -day basis. I know for me, yes, Brad's coming back for another cycling analogy, get over it, okay? I know for me that I am in the perfect shape for the amount of effort I put into my body for cycling right now. If I want to be a faster climber, I've got to make an intentional effort to go up harder climbs. I'm about to enter into a season of training in April. I'm giving myself my 40th birthday present. I'm going to Spain for a week to climb some of the most amazing climbs. That, that It's like a bucket list of, of cycling routes. Okay, It's nerdy for you, but it's exciting for me. I'm giving it to myself in April because when I actually turned 40 in July, I was in not any type of physical condition to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And so I said to myself, if I can get to this specific fitness with this specific weight, then I'll buy my tickets and put in some real effort so that I can actually enjoy these climbs and not have an aneurysm or cardiac arrest halfway through, right? <laughs> there's some, you know what I'm talking about, Cadence. There's some rides you're just excited you survived it, right? I want to actually enjoy this trip, okay? It's, it's a weird thing cycling. You enjoy the suffering after a while. But you know that the hard climb is the good climb. And that the hard climb makes you stronger. During fall break, uh, we took the, the kids and um, Carol's mother to Phuket for a week. And we were walking around uh, by the beach. We were walking back into town to get the kids some food. And, and like most kids who've been playing on the beach do, they immediately started saying, I'm tired. 
I'm so tired of walking, my feet hurt, my legs hurt, right? And so another one of our sayings that I made them repeat on the streets of Phuket as we're walking to go get them some noodles is today's tired is tomorrow's stronger. You should be writing these things down, folks. This is good. I'm preaching good today, okay? I am preaching good. You need to be taking notes. You need to be listening to this podcast, all right? Hard things make you stronger. So if you came to church tired today, I mean, I just want, I want to ask you a question. This is a safe space. How many of you just came to church tired? You said, I had a tiring week. I had a long, I'm raising my hand, right? Just being a dad, right? On top of that, there's work, there's meetings, there's all sorts of other events. There's, there's going to hospitals, there's this, that, and the other. Like, I'm tired, I want you to take heart today, tired person, tired mom, tired dad, tired college student, tired young professional, tired teenager. Your tiredness today is only going to make you stronger tomorrow. The only reason your your legs get tired after a workout is because they've reached their maximum capacity and your body, the system that it is, is strengthening itself and adding more muscle so that tomorrow you can accomplish the same thing more easily. Today's tired equals tomorrow's stronger. And Nehemiah understood that concept. That's why he didn't walk away. Don't you walk away. And once you understand these principles, it allows you to live a little more contrary to the world around you so that when you're tired and the world around you would go through the same situation and they'd say, this has happened again. I just, I throw my hands up. I just want to walk away. You can be the weirdo that throws your hands up and you're worshiping because you're saying, I'm tired, but that means God is making me stronger and that means he's going to give me something greater to carry in the future. Again, you don't live from storm to storm. You live from glory to glory. So if you're in the middle of that season of tiredness, if you're in the middle of opposition, if you're in the middle of conflict, you can rejoice because you know that the glory is just around the corner. Nehemiah understood this. So if you hear anything from me today, it's this. Don't quit. Don't quit. It may be hard. They may not get it. He may not understand you. They may not receive the message that you're trying to say to them. It may feel like things are unraveling. The diagnosis was was bad again. But don't quit. You know, it got so bad for Nehemiah. It got so bad that he actually had to, ha- he had to have his work team. Meaning, he basically had to take the amount of people who are working on this project and divide them in half and say, all right, your shift is going to be you're building the wall. And the other half, your half, is you're just going to play guard and be a volunteer army to protect the people who are going to be building the wall. 
It even goes so far as to say that he had to arm his construction workers. Everybody who was working to restore this wall, to build this wall, had to have an, a weapon on them and ever be at the ready. They had to create contingency plans in case there were terror attacks. Talks about how he said, look, if you get attacked, you've got to blow your trumpet. And if you hear the trumpet, you've got to drop everything you're doing and run and help out your people. But don't quit. It may be really hard, but don't quit. You may not see a way out, but don't quit. Don't quit. And they didn't quit. Look what happened, and that's where we pick up in chapter 6, verse 15. In chapter 6, 15, it says this. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun. They didn't quit. They didn't quit. And I don't see any quit in any of you. You are not a church of quitters. And even there's times when you want to give, just throw your hands up in the air and say, this is just, this is ridiculous. This is too hard. There's got to be an easier job. There's got to be an easier major. There's got to be an easier relative. There's got to be an easier co-worker. There's got to be an easier situation for me. Don't quit. God's placed you there for a reason. You're almost there. My wife will be the first to tell you, and I can, I can testify and agree wholeheartedly, the greatest, and maybe this is not something to look forward to for you single ladies, so maybe just plug your ears and go la la la, the greatest pain in labor is the last pain. It's the one right before the child is born. So when you're in your greatest pain, Know that something great is about to be birthed. And we see that in verse six in, in chapter six, verse fifteen. That it was finished. And you know, there's gonna be times as we move and we transition and we start to be more intentional and we 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 start to welcome more people as a church and we start to grow as a church. There's gonna be hard times for us. There's been hard times for us as a church. There's gonna be Sundays you just wake up and you go, Oh, I just wish I could sleep. Oh, man, there's a million things I'd rather do. But you don't quit. And we don't quit, and we keep moving forward because we know this vision that God's given us. We know this purpose that he has for us moving to ICS in just a few weeks and opening our doors and having an amazing celebration where we welcome our community around us on the 27th of January. There's a purpose behind it, and that's restoring hope to people's lives to build up, to come alongside people, build them up and let them discover who Jesus really is. Let them discover there's a God that is for them. Let them help them receive grace. Let their life begin to be transformed and encourage and empower them and then release them to go change their world. 
that's where we are headed to. Next week, we're going to have kind of a really, we're going to begin some strategic meetings of talking about how do we do this? How do we accomplish this? What systems do we need to put in place? And I got to tell you, folks, if you're praying for me to get to, to, to be a systems thinker and to have, figure out how to put systems in our church, God is answering your prayer because that's been the word that God has been placing in me for a lot. I, everywhere I go, I look at systems now. So thank you, number one. But number two, um, be careful what you pray for. But don't quit. It's going to be hard. Nobody ever promised you it'd be easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Now we'll see if we... Hey, boys, I want to finish this. The hard things are... Yeah, see? And and they're going to remember that hopefully someday when they're 25 and they're having to work out this project that they just can't figure out. They'll remember their dad's annoying little sayings. And they'll remember that Duttons do the hard things. The hard things are the best things. And this was a hard project. I want you to, I want to, just to give you kind of a, a scale, a scope of what Nehemiah was able to accomplish in 52 days. Because you could think, when, we, when you say they built a wall, you could think maybe like a little knee-high pile of rocks, right? But let me just show you a map of what it looked like. This is, this is kind of, a, we come back to the outline here. Number one, uh, chapter one of Nehemiah. Oh, we're jumping around. Chapter one, the vision is given. Chapter two is the risk is taken. Chapter 3, we saw last week where the work begins. Chapters 4 and 5 are the opposition and the persecution. And then we see in chapter 6 that the wall is completed. And then chapter 7. Chapter 7, the first thing that happens whenever Nehemiah finishes the wall is they immediately do a census. And that seems such a weird accountant thing to do, doesn't it? But it's because they wanted to see the reasons for the wall. And if you look in your scripture, if you look in your text, you see all sorts of families and breakdown. Those were the 30,055 reasons for building the wall. Because once it was complete, they allowed those 30,055 people to come in and occupy that city. To occupy that, sa- that space of hope and dignity. And this is that space I was talking about. This is the map. I want you to see this. That's his Jerusalem. This is this is a breakdown of section by section who built what and and the and the the gates that and the wall that he helped coordinate to build. And this may just look like a bunch of text on a screen, and we'll put this up on our website, and you'll get that on your Tuesday email if you subscribe to it, so you can read it a little bit more. But you can see what he did is he gave each family, each kind of community, each section, each kind of click, each social club, whatever you want to call it, each profession, their own section of the wall that they, he said, all right, this is you. You're going to build this and you're going to be responsible for this. Here's the amazing thing, folks, is that if you were to go, if you were to open your Cathay Pacific app right now and buy some tickets to Israel, buy some tickets to, to Jerusalem, you can actually go and see physical remnants of Nehemiah's wall today. And this wall was built in 344 BC. 
In 2007, parts of the, the, the wall of old, the old city of Jerusalem start to, started to crumble because that's what things do after thousands and thousands of years and hundreds and hundreds of years of tourism it will do to you. But archaeologists began to, to, to look underneath part of this crumbling wall, and what they found were dogs' bones, right? And that's weird, I know, but I have to include it because it meant that this was a, this was a section of the city that... that Jerusalem, Israelites would bury their dead animals, okay? So the number one, the people had pets. So if you have a dog, you kind of have Nehemiah to thank for it, okay? But what they found underneath those dog bones was they found pottery, they found bowls, they found different styles of pottery dating back to the Persian Empire. You can literally go see part of Nehemiah's wall today. Maybe not today, you'll get there by tomorrow, but you can go see it. And I want to give you some facts and figures about just the scale of this project, okay? Here's the, look at these facts and these figures. The wall length, the length around the perimeter of the old city of Jerusalem is four kilometers long. That's a long ways. That's a long ways. Just to give you some scale of distance, that's the distance it is from this building here to Maon Shan. Right? Maon Shan. That means that's the distance that men with their hands, women with their hands, no modern cranes or construction technology built. Only the, 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 the fuel that fueled it was their desire to please God in their sweat. That's the perimeter of the building. But then here's what's, the, that, that, that doesn't sound very impressive if you think of a, a knee-high wall. But the height of these walls was 12 meters. That's 12. If Ryan, stand up. Ryan's about 1.2 meters tall, okay? So take 10 Ryans and stack them up, right? That's the height of those walls. Thank you, Ryan. But then stories talk about how the princes and how royalty actually walked along the top of these walls. These walls were two and a half meters thick, which is about, if, if you were, when you leave today and you go get on the sidewalk downstairs, that's one and a half sidewalks thick. Of stone. This is not a small, this was not a small scale engineering project, folks. This was a major project. But again, it was never about a wall. It was about the 30,055 reasons for the wall. And for us as a church, it's not just about a new location, is it? It's about making space for the 400,000 reasons for our church. So application for today, and then we'll pray and eat. Application is this. If you're facing opposition, chances are you're heading the right direction. If you're facing opposition right now, chances are you're headed in the right direction. What I mean by that is this. If you're headed 
and you're facing people who are who are critiquing you, who are standing up and, and being a Santa Ball and a Tobiah and, and saying, you know what, what are you doing? Like this is this is, you're crazy. God uses people that look crazy in the world's eyes to accomplish his purposes. Can you imagine how crazy Noah looked as he's building the boat in the middle of a wide open valley saying that, folks, there's going to be water that's falling from the sky. You know that when it flooded in Genesis, that was the first time that it ever rained. It was the first time that recorded that water fell from the sky. And here's this crazy guy who's building a boat that's going to try to be a floating zoo telling people, look out, water's going to fall from the sky and I'm I and my family and all these animals are going to be safe. Can you imagine how crazy he looked? I mean, you've seen how big the ark is, right? It's right underneath that bridge in, in, on Mawa, right? It's amazing how we found it and we built a highway over it, right? It's a joke, okay? I know it's geography. All right, but if you're facing opposition, most of the time you're headed in the right direction. Second application is even doing good work can make you tired at times. And it'll make you want to quit unless you forget the why. And that's why chapter 7 is included in Scripture. That's why he included that census. Because he wanted to remind you and his story. These were the whys. And I want each of you, I want you to look me in the, I want you to look me right here in the eye real quick. Each and every single one of you. I want you to hear this, so that's why I'm asking you to look me in the eye. I want you to receive this. You are one of the whys that this church exists. You are one of New Heights Church's whys. And in your life, there are some whys. Not W-I-S-E, but W-H-Y apostrophe S. And if you forget the whys, the work doesn't seem to make sense. That's why I keep saying it was never about a wall, folks. It was what the wall provided, and it was restoring a home. It was restoring a heritage to people. It was about doing something greater and being a part of something greater than just yourself. Can you imagine what it was like to be the crew that finished that project? And on the day they they invited the people back in to take their part of the city, they watched as the 30,055 wise entered back in through gates they had built and found the safety and the security from being inside the walls that they had rebuilt. And then as you'll see next week, a revival breaks out as the word of the Lord is read in the Lord's city for the first time in generations. Folks, what if God is calling you to complete that wall so that the 400,000 wise can come in and we see a revival break out?
I believe it's going to happen. I believe we're in the middle of it. I believe that the wall is being half built right now. You're building the wall. You're building the wall and you're making Jerusalem great again, right? At the risk of ripping off a political statement, right? Again, there's nothing new under the sun, but that's ultimately what Nehemiah did, didn't he? He said, I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to make Jerusalem great again. And that's exactly what he did. He invited in and made a home and a community for 30,000 people. But God, Jesus said that you will do, and he's speaking to you as in his church, will do greater things than I'd would. And Jesus did some amazing things, didn't he? What if God wants you to play a part in providing a home for the 400,000 of our neighbors that need Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for we thank you for the risk that Nehemiah took in chapter 2 of, of sharing his vision. And sometimes when we get a new vision from the Lord, it's even scary it just or silly to even talk about it. And I have to think that he felt borderline silly sharing with the king of the occupying force that had possession of his home city, his desire to build and rebuild the safety and security and dignity of his people. But we thank you for the risk that he took and the example he has set for us today for us to live out the vision you've given us as a church and us as individuals. And I think that 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 there is a correlation between those two. God, I pray that you'd show all of us as we begin to talk strategically about the sections of the wall that you need us to build, as we begin to prepare for our season of welcoming in our neighbors and welcoming in the 400,000 to join this spiritual covenant community, you show us the section that we that you're calling us to be responsible for building. And that we would put in the work and that even when it's hard, we wouldn't quit. That we would live out, that our lives would be a testimony of the hard things and the best things. You've, call, you've called us to a hard work, but that means you've called us to the best work. So that when we all face some kind of opposition, persecution, uh, conflict, we'll know my God is for me and I am going to fight from a posture of victory, not for victory, because of what Jesus has done. Help us to remember our reasons, all 400,000 of them. God, I pray you'd bless our church as we walk out in, in, in this vision, that you would, we would get to see... Nehemiah chapter 8, that revival occur 
in front of our eyes, that we would have the privilege of being a part of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.